Welcome to Mammoth Community Christian Church. It's, it's just such a privilege to join with you every Sunday to worship our Lord, to, to find the meaning of our existence together in His presence. October is our mission month this year, and so throughout this month, each message has been leading us deeper uh, into an understanding not only of God's mission throughout the world, but also of the role that God gives us, the calling He gives us to participate in His mission. And this morning, we're looking at the passage, which more than any other passage of Scripture, contains Jesus' words that that define and describe the role that God is giving us in His mission. And we call this the Great Commission In in Matthew chapter 28, let's look at it together. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Now sometimes when I talk to somebody who's beginning to learn more about the teachings of Jesus for the first time, someone who's beginning perhaps to attend church regularly, someone who's testing the waters to see if Christianity really is something that they're willing to commit their lives to. I, when I talk to someone like this, I become concerned when I sense that they're viewing Jesus and a life of following him as just another ingredient that they can add to their life. Like something that will round out their life or something that will make their life more, more balanced. Like a bit of spiritual spice that they're adding to the recipe of their already very full and complete lives. If we're honest this morning, I think we know that even believers who've committed themselves to knowing and following Jesus, can fall into this this mentality of thinking of their friendship with God as something that's added on to their life, even perhaps something that's bracketed off from the, the rest of their life. And when we slip into this way of thinking, though, we're viewing our own lives As the center of gravity, you could say. We're viewing our own personal stories as the main story. And we're viewing our friendship with Jesus as something that helps us in our own story. Like taking vitamins every day or, or adding a workout to our otherwise busy schedule. But when we add our friendship with Jesus to our busy lives, like a positive, healthy, new routine, when we hope that Jesus will enhance our lives, help us with our stories, we're getting things backwards. And this morning, Jesus' words to us in Matthew 28 are helping us flip this around, help us see our lives and God's stories correctly. Because God's story of God's mission is the main story. (coughs) Excuse me. 
C.S. Lewis describes this shift really well at the beginning of The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, one of the books of the Chronicles of Narnia. Lucy and her brother Edmund are visiting their annoying cousin, Eustace Scrub. And one day, Lucy and Edmund are sitting in a room in our world, staring at a painting on the wall of a very Narnian-looking ship. The painting makes them feel sad because they miss the land of Narnia. They've visited the land of Narnia already twice together, so they're talking about it when suddenly Eustace, who's been eavesdropping, listening in, he bursts into the room to mock them. Eustace, of course, thinks that the picture on the wall is a rotten picture, he says, but when Lucy tries to explain to him why she likes it, he turns to it again, looks at it, and he freezes. And the reason why he freezes is that the ship in the painting, rather than staying perfectly still, as you'd expect a ship in a painting to to be, the ship has begun moving up and down. And the waves of the ocean start swirling and and splashing. It, It doesn't look like a painting anymore. It looks like something we would see in our flat screen TVs. The next part Lewis tells best, and I quote, Stop it, came Eustace's voice, squeaky with fright and bad temper. It's some silly trick you two are playing. Stop it. I'll tell Alberta. Ow! The other two were much more accustomed to adventures, but just exactly as Eustace said, ow, they both said, ow, too. The reason was that a great cold salt splash had broken right out of the frame, and they were breathless from the smack of it besides being wet through. I'll smash the rotten thing, cried Eustace. And then several things happened at the same time. Eustace rushed toward the picture. Edmund, who knew something about magic, sprang after him, warning him to look out and not to be a fool. Lucy grabbed at him from the other side and was dragged forward. And by this time, either they had grown much smaller or the picture had grown bigger. Eustace jumped to try to pull it off the wall and found himself standing on the frame. In front of him was not glass, but real sea and wind and waves rushing up to the frame as they might to a rock. He lost his head and clutched at the other two who had jumped up beside him. There was a second of struggling and shouting, and just as they thought they'd got their balance, a great blue wave surged up round them swept them off their feet, and drew them down into the sea. Eustace's despairing cry suddenly ended as the water got into his mouth. So often we think we can add Jesus to our lives like one more activity next to all of our other activities. When we think this way, we're acting as though we can hang our relationship with Jesus on the wall of our lives, like a beautiful painting that we can enjoy looking at now and again, but a painting that's limited to this small space on the wall of our lives. Instead of Jesus being a small part of our stories, though, today Jesus is teaching us that he's inviting us into an adventure far greater, far larger than any of our small lives. Jesus is calling us to allow the picture 
of God's mission throughout the world to grow to its actual huge size. And for us to allow our lives to to shrink to their actual small size, small but significant size, so that we can find our place within God's great story, the great adventure into which he invites us. This morning, Jesus is inviting us into the story far greater than ourselves. To see this, let's look at our passage again, which records a meeting between Jesus and his disciples after Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, (coughs) and right before he ascended into heaven 40 days after the resurrection. We read that the 11 disciples obeyed Jesus' instruction to go into Galilee to meet him. We read, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. So far, Jesus has told his closest followers to only take one step. That's all they have to do. Just do one thing. Just go into Galilee, find this mountain, wait for me. I'm going to meet you there. He's about to give them more instructions, but they first need to take this one step so that they're in the right place at the right time to receive Jesus' next commands. We also see that they worshiped him. This is one of many places throughout the New Testament where we see direct evidence that Jesus is God. Throughout the Old Testament, we find clear explanation that God is beyond and above humanity. God is the source of all life, and we owe our existence completely to him. Furthermore, God is not like us. God is eternal, perfectly wise, and holy, righteous, and good, whereas we are limited, and because of sin, we are mortal and flawed and broken. We are creatures are made in the image of our creator, but we are not God. Uh, Theologians call this the existential divide. God is God, we are not. Now for Jewish people like the disciples to worship a being, I'm sorry, for for, uh, Jewish people like the disciples who are really committed to uh, the Old Testament description of who God is, for them to worship a human being like a human of flesh and blood, this tells us that there's been a radical shift in their thinking. And the shift is this. They've become convinced that Jesus is not only human, Jesus is also God. Now later the church would concisely summarize Scripture's teaching about this by explaining that there is one God who exists eternally as three people, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, the one eternal God, the Trinity. And the church would take the teachings of Scripture and explain that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, is fully God and fully human. And all of this, is entailed within and implied by the disciples' act of worshiping their risen Lord Jesus Christ on that mountain in Galilee. We then read a very strange line. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. 
Think about this for just a moment. What were they doubting? <coughs> they obviously were not doubting that Jesus had risen from the dead because he's standing in front of them and they've already seen him. He's appeared to them a number of times. Before this, Jesus has already invited them to reach out and touch him to see that he's a real, resurrected, living, physical person. He's not an immaterial ghost. Jesus has eaten food with them to prove this point. And we read in Acts 1-3 that he had given them many other convincing proofs that he was alive. The resurrection truly happened. They're, They're not doubting this. They're also clearly not doubting that Jesus is God in human flesh, for we read that they are all worshiping him. And as I said, for strict Jewish people like the disciples, they only worship God. So they, by worshiping him, they're showing that they know that Jesus is fully flesh and he is fully God, fully human, fully God. So what are they doubting? They're not doubting that Jesus rose from the dead. They're not doubting that Jesus is God. So if we eliminate these two options, I think that what we're left with and what the disciples may have been doubting was this. What's the next step? Where does this path lead? Where do I fit into God's plan? Where do we fit into God's plan? Remember, this is basically what was on their minds in Acts 1, which is a different angle of the same scene. Uh, The last time I spoke, we saw this passage. They asked Jesus there, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're asking, Lord, what's next? Are you finally going to do what we want you to do? Will God's work finally fit into our earthly plans and ambitions and expectations? But we saw last time I spoke that Jesus responds by explaining that rather than God bringing about the disciples' plans, the disciples will now bring about God's plans. And Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In Matthew 28, we find the disciples doubting, probably doubting what the next steps they are to take. After all, Jesus has done it all. As the Lamb of God, he's borne the sin of all humanity on the cross. And he then displayed his victory over sin, death, and the devil by rising from the dead. Not even the powerful religious leaders of Israel, not even the Roman Empire could stop him. And as the wonder and the power and the glory of Jesus' victory was washing over the disciples for these 40 days after he rose from the dead, uh, before he ascended into heaven, perhaps some of them were beginning to have this doubt, what else is there? What's next? What do I do? What even can I do? Where where do we fit into God's story? And Jesus then gives his most detailed answer in Matthew 28. Then Jesus came and said, All authority 
in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus is basically telling them, your plans for me have always been too small. And your plans for you have also always been too small. Your expectations for God's work in the world and God's work in your own life have always been far too limited. And Jesus communicates this by making five statements underlined on the screen that communicate the limitless, all-encompassing scale of God's story into which he's inviting them and the significant role that God is giving them in the powerful, ever-expanding wave of God's kingdom that will sweep through the entire world as the prophet, prophet Habakkuk prophesied centuries earlier when he said, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Look at these five statements that describe the limitless, all-encompassing scope of God's story. First, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, there is no authority that Jesus lacks. There is no authority in heaven or on earth that he doesn't possess. All rights, all rule, all authority have been given to him. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the president, the prime minister, the leader, the great shepherd over every other earthly ruler. On the basis of this limitless, all-encompassing authority, Jesus reveals to his disciples what their next step should be. And and he makes his second limitless, all-encompassing statement. He says this, therefore go and make disciples, not just of your family members, not just of your close relatives or of your friends or not just of those who share your same language or who are of your same ethnic group, Go and make disciples of all nations. This is amazing. Keep in mind that the disciples are people who likely have never traveled more than 200 miles beyond their birthplace ever. They are likely people who have never traveled to another region of the Roman Empire. And Jesus is sending them to go into all nations to make disciples of all people groups. The Greek word translated here as, as nations does not refer to nation states uh, with national governments and borders like we have today. The Greek word is ethne. It's the word we get our word ethnicity from. Jesus is sending his disciples across ethnic and cultural barriers in his authority to bring God's truth and love to all people groups, to all ethnicities. Third, Jesus tells us to baptize people from every ethnic group in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This describes calling all people to complete, undivided commitment to the one God who exists eternally as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Through baptism, 
we declare that we belong to God and that our Lord Jesus Christ, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, he, he owns us now. We belong to him. He can do with our lives whatever he wants. He can send us out wherever he chooses. He is our Lord. Fourth, Jesus says we are to teach all people groups to obey everything I have commanded you. There's not one part of what Jesus has taught us that we are to omit or skip over. We and those we teach are together called to obey everything Jesus has taught us. And this also means that Jesus' teaching applies to all of us equally. None of us have a privileged position that exempts us from needing to humbly and faithfully obey the whole truth that God reveals in Jesus Christ recorded in Scripture. Fifth, we find the last limitless, all-encompassing statement that Jesus makes. And this is the most comforting one of them all. Jesus says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. On the cross, Jesus bore the weight and the ugliness of every human sin ever committed by humanity. He was forsaken by the Father, and he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken by the Father in our place so that we never need to experience the forsakenness that our sin deserves. Jesus experienced utter and complete aloneness on the cross so that we may know that we are never, ever alone. And as we accept his invitation to enter the adventure of his story, which is so much greater than ourselves, we receive the ironclad promise that we will never, ever, ever be abandoned. We will never, ever be alone. He will be with us always. I am with you always to the very end of the age. Putting this together, we see we are sent out in Jesus' limitless authority to make disciples of every ethnic group across the entire earth, calling them to complete commitment to Jesus Christ through baptism, teaching them to obey everything Jesus taught, knowing that Jesus will be with us always everywhere to the very end of the age. This adventure, the story of God that Jesus invites us into is so much greater. It's so much deeper. It's so much richer than our little lives that we should never, ever dare to imagine that we can assign Jesus a small picture frame on the wall of our busy lives and add him to the mix of our other activities and commitments like a little spiritual spice mixed into the recipe of our lives. Rather, God calls us as small, limited people into the limitless, all-encompassing adventure of participating in God's story 
that begins with creation, that stretches throughout all of God's works, throughout all of the pages of Scripture, and that now continues in us and around us and will continue into all of eternity. As I mentioned last time, God's mission is everything, everywhere, all at once. Now, of course, everything, everywhere, all at once is perhaps the greatest movie that's ever been made. And I don't claim to understand everything in it or to have fully grasped all of its deep metaphors and dimensions. But one thing I think I might understand from this movie is this. The life of Evelyn, not our Evelyn, but the one played by Michelle Yeoh, which might have seemed insignificant to her. Her life seemed insignificant even to herself. She's the owner of a laundromat in California. She's struggling to get by. But her life, it seems so insignificant. In reality, her life is perhaps the most significant life that ever existed across the multiverse. Now, do I have to explain? Has anyone here not seen this movie? Raise your hand. Okay, all right few of you. I think most of us have. So I'm not going to go into it too deeply, but basically there are many separate parallel universes which splinter off from one another whenever people make this choice rather than that choice. It like splinters reality into two separate parallel universes. And one of the main characters, Alpha Raymond, tells Evelyn that she's the greatest failure of all Evelyns in the multiverse. But because of this fact, she may have the ability to defeat the monster Jobu. But the sad reality is that unfortunately the monster Jobu turns out to be her own daughter. By doing so though, by defeating Jobu, Evelyn would save the multiverse and all reality. Evelyn discovers though that the path to saving everything The multiverse in all reality is through reconciliation with her daughter, through the healing of her relationships with the other people in her life. I still have no idea, though, what the everything bagel means. Maybe some of you can explain that to me later. I think that this film provides a glimpse of what it feels like for us to be invited into God's limitless, all-encompassing mission. First, we discover, like Lucy, Edmund, and Eustace, that we're much smaller. We're, We're much less significant than we may have hoped. And that God's story of salvation is far greater than any of our little lives. At the same time, like Evelyn, even though we're imperfect broken, limited people, we're given a role that's far more important and crucial and significant than we ever before could have imagined possible. The God of the universe is calling each of us to enter the greater story of his mission so that he can invite other people through us into God's great adventure. Jesus is inviting us and through us, the people around us, into the story that's far greater than ourselves. In closing, I'd like to share one way I experienced a glimpse of God's limitless, all-encompassing story that I could never limit to a picture frame hanging on the wall of, of my life. I was in college and I I learned that the mission organization that our inner city ministry was part of and the organization that I had served with previously in Europe was planning to hold four evangelistic concerts 
in the four largest cities of India where the message of Jesus Christ would be clearly presented. And as I prayed about this outreach, I sensed God asking me to participate in what our organization was about to do in India. I had very little money, but bit by bit, God provided all the finances that this trip required. I needed to take a quarter off from my studies at my university, but my family and my university supported this decision. And I learned that this experience would even count as an, <coughs> as an internship toward my degree. So I flew to India, and other team members from our organization flew to India from Europe and New Zealand, and we met there, only to discover that the Indian government had seized the, the large flight cases that contained the equipment that we needed to hold these concerts. Because the sound equipment and stage props were, were seized and confiscated, our plans for these large evangelistic events quickly fell apart. I didn't know what God was doing, but I did know that he was inviting me deeper into, into the adventure of his story, the adventure of his mission in the world. And so I joined my colleagues in the organization by praying for God's leading and God's direction. One of my colleagues with whom I had served in Poland and Amsterdam had earlier in his life been a homeless drug addict on the streets of Amsterdam until Jesus had miraculously encountered him and changed his life and called him to follow Jesus. In Amsterdam, he had even earlier shown me anarchist graffiti that he had painted here and there throughout the city before he knew Jesus. Now, though, God was giving him a burden to help those who are in the same hopeless condition that he had once been in. So he and I decided to travel from the west coast of India into the city of Delhi with the hope of starting a ministry that would take those who are dying off the street, nurse them back to health, teach them job skills, help them reenter society and live a productive, meaningful life. All we had though to start this ministry were a couple of names on a piece of paper we were expecting a sum of money to be sent to us from New Zealand, which we planned to use to either buy or rent a building or buy or rent land upon which a building could be built. But a mistake occurred in the financial transfer and the money never arrived on time. We needed a building or a piece of property. We needed a vehicle to transport those who are dying on the street. We needed a driver, we needed a translator, we needed a doctor to work with us, we needed a church to surround and support us and be part of what we were doing. How could we arrange all these things with just two names on a piece of paper? It seemed completely impossible to us. After we arrived in Delhi, we reached out to the two contacts we had on our piece of paper, but they couldn't help us. Now we had nothing, nothing. People tried to give us new leads, but every lead fell flat. Day after day, for I remember it being for about two weeks, we tried everything we could think of, but nothing was working out. We only had a limited amount of time. We had to either get this started or we're missing the opportunity and we're becoming more and more discouraged. This, this is overwhelming. What's going to happen? It's, it's not coming together. 
And finally, we came to the point where we knew that the only way that this ministry would start was through the miraculous power of God. Again, as was the case when my friends and I were trying to start a ministry to the goth punks in Minneapolis, it's as though God said, okay, you've tried this your way, now stand back and let me do this my way. And in one single day, everything came together. In one single day, God provided a place for us to build a small building, a vehicle to transport those who are dying on the street, a driver, a translator, a doctor to work with us, a local church to participate with us. One single day. And soon after that, I returned to our inner city ministry in Minneapolis, and my friend stayed in India, and for the next 10 years, he, he took my former drug addict friend from Amsterdam, whose life Jesus had transformed, he, he would take the poorest of the poor, those who are dying on the street, he'd lift them up in his arms. He'd saved hundreds of people's lives. He'd nursed them back to health. In concrete and practical ways, he showed them what the love of Jesus Christ for all people looks like. Today, Jesus is inviting all of us into the story far greater than any of our lives. You might be here today because you want Jesus to help you with your life. You, want, you might be wanting Jesus to help you with this challenge or that difficulty. Jesus, help me with my story. You may be praying, Jesus, finally bring about my plans for my life. But instead today, Jesus is calling you to bring about God's plans for the world. Today, Jesus is calling us to see our lives as the small size they actually are next to the limitless, all-encompassing adventure of God's mission. But even though our lives are small and God's mission is huge, Jesus is offering each of us a significant role in his story. The story so much greater than ourselves. The story of God's kingdom built on the truth and love of Jesus Christ. This morning I pray that like Lucy, Edmund, and Eustace, we'll let God's story like a mighty wave just sweep us in. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray today for a change in how we view you, how we view the world. God, let us see the calling that you've given us and give us the grace to say yes to you. Whatever you have for us, wherever you send us, whatever you call us to do, we say yes. We want to participate in your mission. We pray this in your name. Amen.